Let's turn in our Bibles, if you have them, to our sermon text for today, which is Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. We continue a series on the Ten Commandments, and today we come to the Second Commandment, like I said, chapter 20 of Exodus, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. O Lord, our God, we give thanks to you for revealing your word to us, yourself to us, your will. We pray that you would help us to understand and to apply uh, your truth. We pray for this here. We also pray for all those who are hearing your word this day, we pray that you would give a door for the gospel, especially for our missionaries overseas, that you would strengthen them as well, that the gospel would go forth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to the second commandment, and let's start with the fact that I'm calling it the second commandment. Not everyone calls it the second commandment. Everyone knows there's Ten Commandments, but in the text of Scripture, it doesn't say First Commandment, this, Second Commandment, this. And so there's, over the years, been some debate on how to count uh, the Ten Commandments. And Roman Catholics, and then Lutherans following uh, that practice, uh, Roman Catholics include these verses that we just read as part of the First Commandment. But they still have to come up with ten. Uh, and so they divide the tenth, what we call the tenth commandment, you shall not covet, you know, your neighbor's things, uh, into two. And they actually divide it into two different ways. Some would separate out, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife, and others would separate out, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Uh, in any case, they have divided up because they've combined what we would call the first and second commandments. Well, the first problem with, with that practice, the, the Roman Catholic practice, is that what is our Tenth Commandment holds together. It resists being divided. There's no textual warrant for dividing uh, the thou shalt not covet commands, especially since the things we ought not to covet are presented in a different order when the Ten Commandments are given again in Deuteronomy 5. In Exodus, uh, it puts you shall not cover your neighbor's house first, and then in Deuteronomy it says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife first, as if the order doesn't matter because it's all part of the same commandment. Um, The second problem with this is that verses 4 through 6, what we just read, deals with a matter that is related but distinct from the first commandment. It is adding something additional that is is, uh, uh, an additional point, an, an additional commandment. Um, and it also, 
yeah, it, it fits better textually to understand this as the second commandment. The first commandment deals with whom should we worship? We should worship God and no other gods. Have this God, the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, that God, no other gods. The second commandment uh, follows up on that with an additional charge, additional commandment, which is how should we worship this one God? How should we worship? Now these are related. God's jealousy can be provoked by the worship of other gods and the worship of him by images, uh, ways not prescribed in his word. Um, We're still giving that worship then to something we have created. And so they are related. Uh, We should have the Lord our God as our God alone. And then, as the second commandment, we should worship him as he directs and not according to human imagination. So in the second commandment, it's about how should we worship and how we shouldn't worship. How should we worship God? There's an explicit prohibition Do not direct worship to images. There's an implicit duty. Worship God in the way he has prescribed and no other way. And then there's a supporting truth about God that it gives. The Lord your God is a jealous God. And that's the order we'll look at these things. First, the explicit prohibition. Do not direct your worship to images. The implicit duty... Worship God in the way he has prescribed, and that alone. And then thirdly, the Lord your God is a jealous God. God is jealous for the devotion of his people. He has provided a way for you to draw near to him by his grace through Christ. Therefore, draw near to him in the appointed way. Do not direct your worship to images. So first... The explicit prohibition, do not direct your worship to images. The second commandment at first might appear like it's prohibiting the making of any image. You know, because the way it starts out, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. That's pretty comprehensive. Can you think of anything that doesn't cover? Uh, it's, it's pretty comprehensive. Don't make an image of a cow, for example, like Israel was about to do so. Um, So does that mean we can't make any images? What about a painting of a tree outside? Is that okay? Well, this second commandment does not forbid the making of all images in general, although it might look like that at first. There were, for example, images prescribed by God in the tabernacle. You know, most notably images of cherubim, of of things in heaven, (laughs) that were on the very curtains of the tabernacle. And God even commanded them to do that. This was not a a contradiction of what he had just told them a few chapters earlier. There was art in Solomon's temple, in Solomon's palace. He had statues of lions next to his throne. God himself uses many symbols and visions to teach his people But in all of this, never were these statues or images to be used as objects of worship. Jewish worship and Christian worship was remarkable in this respect compared to the worship of the nations. All the pagans had idols. Now, they believed, like the Greeks believed, the gods lived on Mount Olympus, but they would also have statues 
which they would use to, to worship those gods and to bow down before them. Uh, this was the practice of all the other nations, but not the people of God, not Israel, and not the church. And so, consider the bronze serpent as an example. That was an image that God told them to make. It had a particular use. It was a symbol of God's mercy as a plague had hit them, and all they needed to do was to look at it. Notice they didn't bow down to it. But if they looked to it as an expression of their faith in God, they were healed. But then later, when people began to direct their worship to that image, they even started making offerings to it. Then King Hezekiah destroyed it and cut it into pieces. This was mentioned as an example of his faith and obedience. He was right in destroying this this image because now people were beginning to direct their worship to it. It was being abused. That was what was prohibited. So what does this commandment forbid? You have to take the, the whole commandment together. It forbids the making of any image for worship, and it forbids bowing down and giving worship to images. You must not direct your worship to images or bow down to them, and we must not make or set up images for that purpose. In fact, we should oppose corrupt worship and according to each one's place and calling, remove or destroy idols. When Israel went into the land and received the land of Canaan, they weren't supposed to let the idols stay there uh, as, as they possessed the territory, as it was properly theirs, then they were to, to destroy it. Doesn't mean you just get to go over to your next door neighbor and, and knock over their idols without any due process, but according to your place and calling, you know, to oppose it. Now, the shorter catechism summarizes it in the same way. The second commandment forbiddeth the worshiping of God by images, or any other way not appointed in his word. Both at Mount Sinai and then later in the apostasy of the northern tribes of Israel, the contrast was between God's appointed ordinances and the worship of man's devising. At Mount Sinai, do you remember when Moses was up on the mountain, uh, he was receiving instructions on how to worship, but the people didn't wait, and they devised golden calf, a golden calf for worship. And they were giving worship to the golden calf, but they were holding a feast to the Lord. They were still worshiping the true God, but they were using a golden calf to do it which was a violation of the second commandment. This is also true with Jeroboam. Jeroboam had seceded from the kingdom of, of Judah, from the heir of David, with the ten northern tribes, and he did not want the people to go up according to the Lord's directions to worship at Jerusalem, because that was now outside his kingdom. He didn't want them to do that. Instead, he came up with his own places and objects and priests and days of worship, setting up golden calves at Dan and Bethel. This is recorded in 1 Kings 12. Now, especially from the contrast with the later Baal worship, it's clear that these golden calves in Israel were used in what was intended as worship to Jehovah. Uh, Jehu, for example, was zealous for, for Jehovah, for the God of Israel. He destroyed Baal worship, but he didn't remove the golden calves. 
That was a, a separate matter. They were wrongly worshiping God. And then some of them went even further to worship other gods, like Ahab and Jezebel. But even the golden calves were an abomination to the Lord. So this prohibition applies not only to idol worship in pagan religions, where they're worshiping the wrong gods in the wrong way, uh, but also to those acts of veneration directed towards images which are promoted in Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox traditions. Even when the God being worshipped is the true God, it's still wrong to direct this worship to images. Now, they might make a distinction between acts of veneration and the worship that is due to God alone. Um, But Scripture prohibits giving either one to images. It says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Uh, In fact, those Greek words were used by the later Greek Orthodox that were defending the worship of images. They said, oh, we can bow down to them, but we can't serve them. Um, but, But both of those are prohibited to the people. Uh, Leviticus 26, for example, says, you shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar. You shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. Do not set up images to bow down to them. Do not express these acts of reverence to these images that you have made. Now, why does God prohibit the worship of images? You know, we could probably come up with a variety of reasons why? But one contrast that, I mean, one basic one is that God didn't tell you to. God sets up his own worship. But scripture itself contrasts the worship of the living God who is active and who directs us by his word with the worship of a dead image who doesn't talk, who doesn't, um, who's not active, who doesn't do things. He's passive. The image just sits there and you're the active one. That's not the way the worship of God is supposed to work. <clears throat> Psalm 135 contrasts the God. Whatever he wishes, he please, uh, whatever he pleases, he does. He's in the heavens. He made the earth. He directs all things. But the idols, they have mouths, but they cannot talk. They have ears, but they cannot hear. You know, and, and shows the contrast between the living God and these human creations that are passive, deaf, and dumb, mute. And so the image, worship of images is man-centered worship. Man makes the image, man invents the practice, man does his worship while the image is passive and does nothing. Whether the idol is supposed to represent false gods or the true God, image worship is man-centered worship that diverts the worshiper from worshiping the living God to a dead and passive object. Did God ever make an image of himself? God made man in his image. When God made an image, he made a lively image, an active one who talks and walks and does things. When he made a creature in his image, he made man, a living and lively representative of him on earth. Now, with respect to human, to living people, humans, we can make a distinction between the respect that we show our fellow man, the honor that we show due authorities, and the religious worship that is given to God alone. Uh, there, there is a distinction there. We'll get to the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. That's different than the worship that, that is due God alone. You could bow down to your king as a king, if you had a king. 
as long as he was not telling you to worship him as a god. But you must not bow down to dead images. So the distinction doesn't apply to the worship of images that man creates. Being made in God's image, we are designed for communion with God. You ought to seek God and to worship him. You must not create an image to treat it as God. This domesticates God. Uh, this makes him manageable. Uh, it makes him subject to you. It, it reverses true worship. That's even true if you made an image, and let's say you animated it. Let's say you made it interactive with artificial intelligence. Should we worship that? No. No, it's something we have to think about today, perhaps. But that image is not God, but that's the creation of man, nonetheless. As Paul said to the idol worshipers of Athens, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. God made us in his image, but we should not return the favor. We, as uh, paraphrase someone else, we should not make an image to treat it as God. God directs us to worship him directly, to direct our worship to the living God, to heed and respond to his word. You know, God actually carved something. The same word here for carved image is the used to describe him carving the rocks out on which he, with his own finger, wrote the word of God on the Ten Commandments. Uh, God has given us his word. He said in Deuteronomy, you didn't see a form out of the smoke and fire. You heard my words. Attend to what I have said. I am living and active. My word pierces to your very hearts. It might make you uncomfortable. You might wish you had an image that didn't say anything, right? But God speaks, and we listen, and we talk to him. It's fitting in the English Reformation that they replaced the images in the front of the church with words, with the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer. God directs us to set our minds on things above and to draw near to the living God in the heavenly places, that we draw near into the holy places, the real holy places, not just the earthly temple, but the heavenly one, that we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the church of the living God, to the angels and festal gathering, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, to God, to Jesus. We come to him. We don't need to come up with an earthly image and to to direct our worship to that. The only mediator between God and man is not an image made by man, but God himself come in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who has ascended to heaven. He has taken his visible presence away from us, directing us to where he is, and he speaks to us from heaven through the message of Scripture and the Spirit. Hebrews says if they if, they, if it was important for the Israelites to listen to him who spoke to them on earth from the mountain, how much more should we listen to Jesus who speaks to us from heaven? Uh, he is speaking to us. We have come to him. We have boldness to enter the heavenly places and to worship him. You don't have to die to go to heaven. As one, uh, one message from Joe Moorcraft uh, would say, um, you can enter heaven and worship God through prayer, through the Spirit, through Christ, even as we worship him with our feet planted on the earth. And so the second commandment explicitly prohibits the worship of images. Do not direct worship to images of your own making, well, any other human's making either. Do not 
even worship the true God by images. Come to the living God. That's what worship is supposed to be. You are dealing with a real person, a triune person, threefold person, one God who speaks and acts and does things and has a relationship with us. Now, obviously, this implies a duty. We should worship God, just not in that way. We should worship God in the way he's told us to worship him. That's the implicit duty. Secondly, worship God in the way he has prescribed and no other way. That means only worship God in ways that have biblical warrant. God decides what's pleasing to him. We shouldn't assume and guess, oh, I hope God likes this. Let's try it out. No, we should uh, see what he's told us would please him and show reverence to him. And he's revealed his will to us that's sufficient to guide us. For us to decide this on our own is presumption. Worship is intended to to please God, to show reverence and homage to him. Aaron had two sons. Well, he had more than two sons, but two of his sons were Nadab and Abihu. And early on in Leviticus 10, they were consumed by fire for offering unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Notice how Scripture makes that important point. God had not commanded this unauthorized fire. Uh, and, and they did so nonetheless, and they were consumed. Interestingly, when God rebuked those who practiced child sacrifice, he condemned it in Jeremiah not only because they shed innocent blood, it broke that commandment, thou shalt not kill, uh, but also because he had never commanded it. He had never decreed it. It did not even enter into my mind. Worship me as I tell you to. Don't come up with your own ways. It usually goes very poorly, and it's always wrong. In Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul condemns self-made religion. And so our, our confession of faith puts it this way. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. Now, confession also says that there's some circumstances that, uh, in worship that are common to any human society which could be guided by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word. In other words, God tells us what to do in worship, but some of the details of how we do them, like what time on Sunday should we gather to meet? We do need to pick one time so we all get here together. Uh, So that needs to be ordered in light of prudence and circumstances and the general rules of the word, like let all things be done unto edifying and let all things be done decently and in order. From 1 Corinthians 14. So this principle, sometimes called the regulative principle of worship, ensures that we are worshiping God the way he wants, making him the center of our worship. It also ensures that we're worshiping the God revealed in Scripture and not some figment of our imagination. As Thomas Watson puts it, it's highly provoking to God to bring any superstitious ceremony into his worship, which he has not prescribed. It is to tax God's wisdom, as if he were not wise enough to appoint the manner 
in which he will be served. To only worship him in the way he's commanded, but also worship him. All right, that's part of the, the emphasis here too. Don't worship him in ways you know, he hasn't commanded, but do worship him. Worship the Lord. He is jealous for your worship of him. He is seeking worshipers to worship him. Worship him with gratitude and reverence, as we read in Hebrews 12. To be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. He is gracious. He's brought us to himself. We should be grateful. But he's still a consuming fire. He's still a holy God. We should approach him with reverence and awe. We should worship God through Christ the Mediator. As Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We come to God through the mediation of Christ. He has opened a way for us to come to him, that we might be washed and cleansed, that uh, we are perfected. This is what all the other sacrificers were pointing to, but weren't able to achieve on their own. They were pointing to the sacrifice of Christ, that we might enter the holy places, purified and acceptable to our God. So through faith in Jesus Christ, relying upon him as we draw near to him. And then put your whole self into it. Worship God with your whole being. Worship God with your mind, heart, ear, and mouth. The Apostle Paul made this an important point in 1 Corinthians 14. Use your mind. He says, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit... How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? So it's important to understand what you're saying, but it's also important to understand what others are saying, and so to say it in a way that they can understand. They had a miraculous gift of speaking foreign languages at that time, but Paul says you need to interpret it so it's edifying to other people so that they can join with you in worship because this is public worship. Let's engage our minds and understand what's being said so that we're convicted, so that we worship God. So thoughtless worship is not good worship. Let's use our minds, but use your hearts and mouths. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That doesn't just mean inwardly in your heart so you don't actually sing out loud, right? It means sing out loud from the heart so that you mean what you say and you put yourself into it. Worship God with your heart, mind, ear, and mouth. And then receive, observe, and keep pure and entire his worship and ordinances. What are those things that we do in worship? This is how the Shorter Catechism describes the positive duty of the commandment. The second commandment requires the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has appointed in his word. So, the Old Testament had a variety of ceremonies, ordinances, right? Well, the New Covenant also has uh, ordinances that are appointed. Ordinances are things God has appointed. 
and uh, in, in worship and in the church. This would mean refer to Christ as appointed the reading and the preaching and the hearing of the Word of God. That last part's important too. It's not just me worshiping God. You too. Uh, the Word of God. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Administering it. Rightly receiving and using it. Prayer and singing. Church government and discipline. Now, the communion of saints. The Lord's Day. These are things Christ has appointed. The early church set a good example by devoting themselves to these things, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the prayers, and to the breaking of bread. In Acts 2, Acts 20, gathering together to break bread and to hear God's word on the first day of the week. Timothy was to devote himself to the reading of Scripture, that is, to others, not only to himself, and exhortation and teaching. And the writers of the New Testament exhorted the church to keep these ordinances pure and entire. Uh, to, to, for example, not abuse the Lord's Supper, like in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, to uh, observe the way God wants his church to work. In 1 Timothy 3. And so, let us worship God in the way that he is appointed and no other way. Diligently observing all his ordinances, because these are the appointed ordinary means of grace. They're good for us, and they're ways in which we truly glorify God. Now, the third point is the supporting truth about God. The Lord your God is a jealous God. Let me reread that last part of the commandment. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. First of all, note that God is sovereign over us. He is the Lord, as we saw last week. Uh, He is, that is, I am that I am, the everlasting one, uh, the faithful one. He is the Lord. Uh, overall. And so we should worship him as he directs, not by images. Secondly, he is thy God. He is ours. We belong to him in an exclusive covenant bond, like that of, of marriage, for example, where we are his people and we ought to have no other gods. We should worship him in the way he is prescribed. This bond is a gracious bond which promises eternal life. So we should not give our worship to other gods, or to images. And thirdly, the Lord our God is zealous for our worship of him. He is a jealous God. God is not a doormat that you can just walk all over. He is patient, but he is zealous for the honor and glory that is due him and will not allow his name to be despised forever. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. He's also jealous for the devotion of his people in a way that a king is rightly jealous for the loyalty of his people or the way a husband is rightly jealous for the love of his wife, does not want to see her going off after others, after rivals. God loves his people 
and he does not want them to be unfaithful to him. Idolatry is spiritual adultery or treason, you know, depending on the analogy that we're using. The Lord's jealousy is expressed both by visiting iniquity and by showing steadfast love. He will judge the iniquity of those who hate him. He will show steadfast love to those who love him. Those who love him will show that love by keeping his commandments. And the Lord's judgment and steadfast love is shown multi-generationally. He judges his enemies to the third and fourth generation. Uh, The wickedness of a person will bring down uh, consequences upon his household. Even if the judgment is mitigated within his life, it might fall upon his grandchildren who continue in his evil ways. As Ezekiel 18 points out, this assumes that later generations do not turn from those evil ways. But, for example, God did not bring disaster upon Ahab and his household in his days, but in his son's days. Ahab had not repented, but he had humbled himself before the Lord, and so the Lord held back for a bit longer. But in his son's days, his son Joram continued in his father's way, and judgment for the both of them was poured out upon Joram and his household at the hand of Jehu, which cut off Ahab's legacy, so that his dynasty would not rule over Israel. God had visited the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation. The wicked will not escape judgment. Even in this age, it will catch up to the wicked, although it might take some time, but at least generationally. How much more exactly will it come upon the impenitent in the final judgment? But a steadfast love is also shown multi-generationally, and not simply upon the third and fourth generation, but to thousands. That is, to a thousandth generation. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, 9 makes that explicit, a thousand generations. In the commandment here, it's a little elliptical, assuming what was already said, third and fourth generation, even to two thousands, that is, thousandth generations. The wicked will be cut off, although it might take a few generations, but those who love the Lord will endure. His people will remain for, for a thousand generations. That is, basically forever. Not like we're counting up to the thousandth and no good after that. He will preserve his church from generation to generation without end. God welcomes believers and their children into his covenant of grace. Uh, as he promised to Abraham, as he has done since, a righteous man brings blessing upon his household. As Psalm 112, verses 1 through 2 says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Of course, each generation is told, exhorted to hold fast to the Lord, to exercise the same faith as their fathers, lest they act corruptly and fall away from the living God. That is a warning to every generation. But each generation, as children of believers, are brought into the covenant on that condition of faith, even from their infancy, and are blessed in the communion of saints. But who loves God and keeps his commandments? Is this even practical? Does this apply to anyone? Or are we all in the category of the ones who are receiving judgment? Who, who loves God and keeps his commandments? The law first ought to humble and convict us and bring that point to us. Even if you have not worshipped an idol, I, I, I doubt 
many of you have that in your at least recent history, you know, what no one has kept this commandment, much less all the commandments, in its fullest sense. Who has given the Lord the honor due his name? Have you? And by nature, we are at enmity for our, uh, with God. And we are condemned for our iniquity. Our only hope is in God's grace. We must trust in the Lord, our Redeemer, to forgive our sins for Jesus Christ's sake and to work that love within us for him. And in this covenant of grace, God owns believing sinners as his own. He says in this verse, he is your God. He has called you to come to him. He has provided a way for you to come to him. Those who come to him through faith in Jesus Christ are secure. So Israel of old and us today are supposed to trust in the Lord and therefore see the law not as a requirement for justification, but as a rule for the life of the redeemed. God receives us and our works in Christ and accepts the love that he works within us and our sincere though imperfect obedience is pleasing in his sight, all imperfections washed away by the blood of Christ. It is the mark of true believers in both testaments that they love God and therefore keep his commandments. Jesus would say the same thing, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not that they obey God without fail, but that they do good works of obedience and repent of their sins endeavoring after new obedience. Those who hate God will be judged, but those who are marked by a love for him will be shown his mercy and love. May we be those who love God and keep his commandments, trusting in his mercy and his steadfast love. So God is jealous for the devotion of his people. He has provided a way for us to draw near to him, uh, that we might be blessed in him, that we might uh, come to worship him in a way that he delights in. So draw near to him in the appointed way, and do not direct your worship to images, for they are the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God. He is the everlasting King. To him be glory and honor. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your mercy towards us in receiving us into your covenant, though we have done much to deserve your curse. We pray that you would work in us a love for you that expresses itself by keeping your commandments, by treasuring them uh, in our hearts, that we might worship you mindfully and, and fervently in the way that you have appointed coming to you through our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would glorify your name, that all the peoples would worship you truly, to be not devoted to, to images, but rather to the living God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.